In past weeks, we've studied the scientific aspects of creation, of Bereshit. We have seen many questions emerge simply from our text of Bereshit, which do not easily correspond to what the scientists say actually happened. Here you have two, of course, levels of questions. One is what we call Ma'aseh Bereshit, Kazmagani, the birth of the universe, and exactly how long this took place, seven days from the point of view of Bereshit, and 12 or so billion years from the point of view of the scientists. We were, in studying these texts, and are not now satisfied with this turn of events. We could have been satisfied. That is, we could have either rejected the scientific findings, as many have done, or we could have rejected Torah's teachings on the subject, as many have done. If one were to study this issue of the interface between science and religion for the last thousand years, you've seen many of these responses. You've seen the Rambam in Moreno Bukhim and other places trying to reconcile for all of those who are perplexed. They are perplexed because science does not correspond to the simple teachings of the Torah itself. They are confused and they know they cannot abandon the Torah. They cannot abandon what their mind tells them. And therefore the Rambam wrote the guide Moreno Bukhim in order to show them how to reconcile these two disciplines. And yet, of course, we've seen many Jews throughout the ages who have rejected science, and to this very day there will be many people who will say that science is taref, it's apikorsut, it's haram, it's a sin to study science, because it will lead you into pathways that are inappropriate from Torah's point of view. Many will reject, therefore, teachers of science. Some, of course, we made some subdivisions, some will reject, some will ignore. Some will reject and say science is all wrong, and some will simply just ignore it and not even be concerned about it, though it's a very real body of knowledge. We chose to neither ignore Torah teachings, of course not, God forbid, nor to ignore the scientific teachings, and rather we tried to find some bridge between these two worlds. Or, perhaps said better, these two accounts of creation. The biblical Torah teaching, known as as well as the scientific account. Now, we had studied, of course, in some depth, Aviezer's book, who tried to reinterpret Ma'aseh Bereshit as allegory. That is a tried and true method throughout Jewish history who people who found a new idea, a new thought, and therefore, when that idea contradicted that which we had in the Torah itself, they saw those teachings as allegory, as metaphors. Nothing wrong with that. Torah itself engages in the art of using metaphor to interpret some very profound ideas. Harambam in Moreno Bukhim, part 2, chapter 30, speaks about the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden, as a mashal, as an allegory. Which is fine. Profound ideas cannot perhaps be communicated through direct intellectual analysis and teaching, but rather, an allegory, a mashal, communicates the depth of that idea more clearly than even a straightforward account. That idea needs some elucidation. I may have mentioned this last time or not. Eli Wiesel in his book, Legends of the Times, meets his Rebbe. Or he says he meets his Rebbe from Sigiyat, going back. And the Rebbe asks him, what are you doing? I write stories. You write stories? About what? About my experiences. Well, are these true stories or not true stories? Rebbe, they're not true stories. So you write lies? You mean you write lies? No, Rebbe. Some 
stories that are not true reflect that which I experienced more so than any words that I could have used or communicated. And it's true. Anyone who knows anything about the Holocaust knows that if you read all the accounts, you don't really understand what really took place. Because the reality that they experienced is incommunicable. Only a metaphor, only a made-up parable to communicate the horror that they experienced. Some not true stories, in quotes, can reflect reality, express a truth more profoundly than simply verbal communication. We may not have the words to communicate an idea, thought, or feeling. It's an obvious point. If you want to say to somebody, I love you, that word is a very strong word. It's a five-letter word, and it's a, it's a good word. But sometimes there are metaphors, poems, which can't communicate the idea of... You don't like one-letter words. <laughs> loves. One has multiple loves in life, not just one. Right. Platonic love, right. <laughs> right. One can use a poem or a gesture... At times, interesting point, the silent gesture may be more communicative than a verbal expression of a certain truth. So should it surprise us that Ma'aseh Bereshit, the most powerful of all teachings, is really incommunicatable? And you will see how, indeed, that which the scientists are saying is so fantastic, so utterly unbelievable, and we'll read more of it in God in the Big Bang by Daniel Matt, who does try to discover the Kabbalistic bridge between both, he'll talk about it, and again, anyone who's read any of the science on this matter says, who are you kidding, scientists? To talk of a galaxy as ours, which we discussed, we discussed this notion, that our galaxy, to its midpoint, is 180 trillion miles. Who's going to believe that nonsense? And that our galaxy is 100,000 light years. That's 100,000 times 6 trillion light years long. Absurd. To tell you, you you're going to buy the next one, that our solar system is actually, actually moving at 13 million miles per day and a 200 million years will cover the circumference of the galaxy is absurd. To note that the next closest galaxy is 2.2 billion light years. Is it million or billion? It's million. Million light years away. And a quasar, the, the greatest, most lit object in the, in the universe, is, has a force of 10,000 billion suns. And that the sun expresses in one second more energy than it's been used in the United States throughout its history. In one second. With my wife leaving the lights on in the house all the time. Even including that. It did it. Again, erase that part from the tape, please. But she always does it anyway. One of our little issues that we have not resolved. Oh, no. <laughs> you walk home. You see every line out. Watch it all. I can't figure that out. It's one of those Kabbalistic kinds of mysteries, I'm sure. That the depth of which we have not yet plumbed. They don't turn them off. I don't understand it. Okay. I was born in the Depression. We just closed lights. We left the room. We're not using any... Like, my wife to close lights when we're still in the room. You don't need, you don't need it to start that. No, no, close lights. They have like, All right, that's for another discussion. So to talk about... That's a metaphor, right. To talk about the universe as scientists do, you cannot take it literally or seriously. Literally. But yet it is literally true. So for Ma'aseh Bereshit to be understood on a literal level and try to communicate these truths wouldn't have really communicated the full grandeur of what it is. So, therefore, Abi Ezer tries to explain Ma'aseh Bereshit as allegory, interpreting it differently. As we read this book, I wasn't all that happy with this particular analysis. His science is good, PhD, MIT, we went through all that, but I didn't like his Pashanut. I didn't like his interpretation of it. Similarly, Schroeder's book, 
Jess and the Big Bang. We went through this book as well. Okay, interesting book. PhD, University of Chicago. Knows the science very well. He's not willing to reinterpret Bereshit. That's a fool's way out from his point of view. Could reinterpret anything. The moon has green cheese also. I could reinterpret that way as well. Not good enough. And therefore, from a purely scientific point of view, he says that yes, the seven days of creation can literally equal the 12 or 14 billion years of creation because time is relative. Post-Newtonian physics, where time and space were viewed as absolute, Einstein says time is relative, shaped by the motions and objects within it. And therefore, perhaps from our perspective, the world is 14 billion years old. But from Hashem's perspective, or from any spot, another point in the universe, that was only a seven-day period of time passing. No, it means 27, 24-hour days. But not days from our point of view. Okay, fine. It's an attempt. Not disagreeing with you. Fine. Correct. That's an interesting question. No, maybe Hashem wants to communicate an absolute truth about this. That's one way. I'm not... We evaluate. I'm not going to evaluate it again. It's one issue, interesting approach to this issue. Both of these attempts, I would say, had positive and worthwhile, worthy of study value. Both had, I think, weaknesses and wanted to take them both with a grain of salt. Salt. This is an ongoing endeavor, and that's what's challenging to the Jewish mind to somehow try to understand Maaseh Bereshit, creation, and the scientific perspective which we've discussed and covered, and we'll cover again. We are continuously attempting to understand God's creation, Maaseh Bereshit, in the same way that science attempts to understand what creation was all about. Our model for this is none other, as you well know, the Rambam, in two distinct places. We had seen these places. Shema Amit Misha Amara. Listen to the truth from wherever source it comes. Truth is an absolute. We have no monopoly on truth. If a scientist tells you this is true, then I have an obligation of listening to it. Why? Because I believe. Could be more katan. Okay, we'll come back to that. Where the statement is made, God's seal is truth. You must perceive and pursue truth. Now the Rambam as well. We had seen it. The way to come closer to God is through an understanding of His creation. To love God and to stand in awe of Hakadosh Baruch Hu is through an understanding of His created world. It's Pashut. Despite its Pashutness, still in all, very few others, although there have been, Sa'adja Gaon would say the same thing, Shabbat Hadagim would say the same thing, Rabbeinu Bahia would say the same thing, but others rejected that approach. Okay, could be as well. Tehilim absolutely saw God's created wor- world as an avenue to, to come close to Akadosh Baruch Hu. Absolutely. But there is a third way of approaching this material that is more radical and more striking than any of the above, and that's the way of Kabbalah. Kabbalah, of course, has two main concerns. We want to study this. Could I please have some Chumashim back there? We never just, not you, Rabbi. That's Morris's job. I pay Morris to do this. Yeah, lower levels, lower levels. Thank you. Any Chumashim, blue or brown. Just make them all uniform. Yeah, but these are bigger print, and some of us are older. I can't see the print of these. Me and me, I'm fine. I'm talking about other people. people. No, I'm only kidding. Okay. Yeah, I need uniform because we announce pages. 
Okay, now, the Kabbalah is concerned about two distinct issues. One is known as Ma'aseh Bereshit. Kabbalah wants Ma'aseh Bereshit to understand how does God create, how did Hashem create the world? Thank you. How did Hashem create the world is a critical question Kabbalah deals with. We want to understand that issue. Thank you. Number one. Equally important, however, to the Kabbalah is Ma'aseh Merkava. Now remember that Murei Nebuchim, the God who flex, is really about these two issues as well. Harambam wants to teach us these secrets. He cannot teach his secrets openly. So therefore, as we all know, Harambam, Maimonides, wrote and concealed as he revealed. And only who is wise knows how to get to the truth of Rambam's teachings. Rambam gives you a code in, in the beginning of the morning, he will tell you that I, have, I will contradict myself in the three and five numbers out of the seven ways that authors contradict themselves and follow along and take note of all my words. And as opposed to Sajigaon, who says, humbly enough, in his introduction, that if you find that I made a mistake, you know what? Correct. Do me a favor. Correct my mistakes. I'm not probably making mistakes. And Imam says, don't change a word. Every single word is well placed. When he says, Haven Zeh, it means, understand this well. When he calls you Beni, it means something. The whole entire work is a brilliant work because it's able to conceal as it reveals and reveal as it conceals. There's a certain art writing a text that David knows about when you are persecuted. Harambam knew very well that these teachings in Morin Abuchim will cause him to be persecuted. And he was. In 1190, in his own lifetime, when he was challenged with not having believed in Tihat HaMetim, as he was in 1232 after the coming year, of course, when he, 30 years after he died already, when he, again it, his issue was challenged and his books were burned, it was the Talmud as well. One could arguably say that that was a great tragedy for Judaism, because the church, because of the Jewish Malshinim, not only with the Ransom, but all Talmud, get rid of all the books of the, of the Jews. Why don't they have these? They're all heretical. Burn them all. Imagine what we lost in terms of the Shonim, ideas, thoughts, and yet it, sta- it started with those who could not tolerate an opinion that was a bit, a lot more than a bit, radical off the mark from their point of view. And again, when Rabbi Yisaf Alba was around 100 years later, as well, they burnt the Ramsar for the third time. It's astounding how Jews could do that, and it's amazing that people still do that in, a, in the Jewish world, still burn books. One of the most striking things I've ever read in my life is what the Panavacha Rebbe said about Rabbi Salvechik's books, burn them. Burn them. How can he say that? I mean, okay, he said it. Maybe his student said it. He's quoted in one of his letters, I have it, of saying, burn Rabbi Salvechik's works. Didn't we learn that lesson yet? And to me, that's an unforgivable... He, he is well. He is well. For, for calling Samson a thug, a criminal, when a Chambu did the same exact thing. So it's, it's where you get it from. So we should have learned that lesson. Of course, people here would never do things like this and understand how terrible it is to do something of this nature. In any case, creation and the divine chariot. We have to get a sense as to what the divine chariot really is all about. We'll talk about that as we go along. But that's one of the two poles around which Kabbalah revolves. Maseh Merkava, the divine chariot, which Harambam explains as divine providence, one of the secrets of Morena Vohim, and Maaseh Bereshit. How did God really create the world? Is of great interest to the Rambam. This is, this is Maaseh Gadol. This is great information. In Mishneh Torah it tells us there's great information and lesser information. The great information is Maaseh Merkava. The lesser information is the arguments of the Gemara itself. But you need A to get to B. 
You have to have your fill of lechem ubasar, of meat and bread, before you get to the higher truths. So, of course, we all know that. But Ambam, nevertheless, basically, Gemara Hagigam makes the point that the Vargadol Maser Rashid. The Vargatan is the arguments of Abaye Barava. Now, What I find interesting about the Kabbalah, and of course we will not go into it in any depth, and of course we will not understand what it really means to imply, and I'm sure that some of you will be intolerant of my attempt to open up this source at all. Because you are of the mind, not a mile, you are of the mind, that you want to understand everything, everything has to be put in a little place, you want to, I'm happy not doing that. I'm very happy living with mystery, although I'm a rationalist, I'm very happy living with existentialism where nothing is quite clear. I'm very happy floating along, searching for a rational understanding, but never closing myself off to the other possibilities that are just beyond my rational understanding. Fundamentally, Borei Olam is incomprehensible. So that gives me almost a jump start at saying, well, there's much in this life that's incomprehensible, and I'm not, I'm not unhappy trying to understand those issues, whether it's Kabbalah or otherwise, and whatever makes sense, makes sense. Whatever makes sense, makes sense, it's fine. It's a flight of fancy, if you will. And I believe there's value in taking flights of fancy. You may not. If you're the scientific bent of mind and you want everything pinpointed as to what it really means, everything will be clear, crystal clear to you in life, but you'll be missing a heck of a lot of knowledge that is not yet solidified as knowledge, but rather begins as speculations, as ideas, as thoughts, I think one should let my, one's mind just fly unhampered by scientific or, categories. Or, or the logic of the heart. Exactly. Okay, don't go away. Rabbi Soloveitchik had once made a point that we are raised scientifically, all Western thinking is based on Aristotelian modes of thought, that something cannot be both A and non-A at the same time. It's called the principle of identity. Obviously, something cannot be both this and not this. It's either this or not. It can be both at the same time. It's not this. Or Salavechik in Lonely Man of Faith, in a wonderful footnote, says that Judaism has never accepted this kind of logic. That something cannot be both A and non-A. To the contrary, Torah would teach something can be both A and non-A at the same time. And what's give, give me the best example of that. The best. Thank you. How do you get that? Because Kadosh Baruch Hu is Kadosh, 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 which means utterly transcendent. And yet, Melucha Askevdor, utterly imminent. And the best formulation, formulation of that is Avram Heschel, who said that God is infinitely transcendent in His eminence and infinitely imminent in His transcendence. Does that make any sense? No. Is that okay? Yes. I further support my case by quoting for you the Sifreh, the Tanetic commentary on the book of Devarim, which says, Im you want to recognize the Creator, then mad agada. Study agada. From out of this, you will recognize Borei Olam, and you will cleave into His ways. What's the essence of agada? That I'm not tied to a rational system. From what we've seen in Heschel clearly, agada means their philosophy. Yeah. Philosophy is clothed in metaphors. Sure, but what kind of philosophy? A speculative philosophy. Is a philosophy that is bound to norms of logic? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Logic as a 
Aristotelian system did not bind the rabbis. You must say what makes perfect sense in a X-valued logic system. I'm going to escape that, Chazal tell us, and they will interpret the same Pasuk in 12 different ways. Are they all right? They cannot be all right, but they are all right. What do we say? But they can be all right, but they are all right. There's an incredible beauty to the way that Chazal operate in these, in these areas, in these speculatively and philosophically. Not binding oneself to very strict, narrow, limiting categories. And that's so because the human mind should not be bound by any set of principles, logical or otherwise. The mind changes, the mind develops, the mind should be able to entertain all kinds of ideas, flights of fancies. And that's part of what's wonderful about the human mind, and we should not limit it. So all of that is in defense, or second, all that is in defense of the use of something, a source, that we're not ordinarily used to. Most of us never open this. I don't intend to open it other than one or two or three pages. And then we'll go on back to this book. But I think it's important to free ourselves, on one hand, of the limiting categories of science, one hand. On the other hand, of the limiting categories of Pishotosha Mikra of the pshat level, understood usually as a simple understanding of the text. Am I obligated to interpret the text simply, pshat level? So we, in fact, last week read from the, from the Zohar and made the point, nicely so, that the Zohar itself tells us, so what did you do with my papers? That's the, it's a sefirot. Page 13. No, no. Page 13, right here. I won't give it out again, but just to remind you, the Zohar humbly professes to be no more than a commentary on, on Torah, of course, the commentary, as we know. Might hence be interesting to hear its own expressed views on the correct method of biblical exegesis, interpretation. Zohar says, quote, Woe unto those who see in the law nothing but simple narratives and ordinary words. Were this really the case then, could we even today compose a law equally worthy of admiration in those days, a thousand years ago? But as all quite otherwise, every word of the law of Torah, law means Torah, contains an elevated sense and a sublime mystery. The narratives of the law of the Torah are but the raiment in which it is swathed. Woe unto him who mistakes the raiment of the law itself. It was to avert such a calamity that David prayed, Gal Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your Torah. Another passage states similarly, but even more strikingly, if the Torah merely consists of ordinary words and answers like the stories of Esav Hagar Laban, or like the words which were spoken to by the Balaam Zaki, why should it have been called the Torah of truth, the perfect Torah, the faithful testimony of God, unquote. So the Zohar refused to be bound by simply the Pshat level. Now, of course, Tuesday night's class talks about what does Pshat really mean. The Zohar will really tell you that its understanding of the Torah is really the Pshat, and what we're doing is really the Mashal. To see the text only as is is really just the metaphor. The real Pshat of the Torah is what the Kabbalah says it really is. We don't have to go that far. All to simply say is that it's legitimate to take oneself one step beyond the Pshat level. Not a hidush. The Ramban, of course, in his commentary does that all the time. Especially in the Yenei Ma'aseh Bereshit. Where the Ramban, as a Kabbalist, as a Mekubal, did not interpret Bereshit the way you have it in front of you. At all. 
So one should be very much aware that what the Kabbalah is doing is really part and parcel of exegesis, of Pashanut, that's been going on for a thousand and two thousand years. So what the Kabbalah does, it opens us up. You may or may not buy into it. doesn't matter that you don't. It's just meant to open and free you. And ironically, it'll give you a better sense of what the science is talking about, as you'll see in a few moments. Yeah, Mars, question. He doesn't interpret the law. He is the law. The Navi, Moshe is the law. The Navi came up to Moshe, not interpreting, but just stating and restating and restating what the law is actually all about. So I'm not sure where you're going with this. So we'll go together there. Blend up in Oz, no problem. Let's see, we'll go slowly and see where we, where we go. Torah contains much more than the shot level understanding. Kabbalah in general, and Zohar specifically, is a very challenging discipline. And again, I don't hope that any of us will really understand it fully, but it'll give us the opening into the breadth of possibility regarding our interpretation of what Maaseh Bereshit is all about. I want you to go as far away as possible from the Pshat level of understanding. If only just to see how far we could travel. We will come back to the Pshat level. We'll look at the Pshat level again. One needs to be rooted in a Peshat understanding of text. Rabbi Akiva, we spoke about it last week. Those four entered into Pardes, did so, and three out of the four did not become normative people once again. When Azai decided to stay on the other side of the Pargod, of the division, his soul was enamored with what he found, and therefore he left. Or, as we plebeianly say it, he died. Really didn't die. He really stayed on the other side. His Nishma stayed there. Or one can interpret it that way. Then Zomayatami Dato. Had he not said that Bashida tells the famous narrative that his teacher Bihanan found him under a tree and he asked him, Where are you? And Bizoma answers, and then There's only four inches between Elunim Tahtonim. His teacher said to the other students, Leave him, he's still outside. Which means he came back to the world but maintained his world view of the other side. Whatever that means. Ben Zoma. Shabbat became a heretic, cut from the roots. What that means is an interesting topic to pursue, not to this moment, but he became a heretic and betrayed the Jewish people to the Romans. Difficult situation. Yerushalmi expands much more so than the Bavli on it, but it's something that is a very difficult context to read if you care about Shabbat but and we do. How does it happen? And Rabbi Akiva Shalom because he was rooted in halacha. He established a halachic system. He took all of the Mishnayot of Rabbi Yudanasi and organized them into the Sidarin. Because he was so rooted in halacha, he was able to take his flights of fancy and able to Nichnas Shalom Shalom. Akiva. So one needs to have that appropriate balance between studying analytically, rigorously, shot wise, as well as allowing oneself to creatively transcend those limits and go beyond. Good. So we will see where this takes us. <clears throat> Remember the comment that George Will made that what science is saying 
today is not as strange as the account of creation in the Bible. If you recall that article George Will had written, and again, I only brought it to your attention because it's amazing how in popular literature as well, everybody's talking about this issue. The telescopes, the uh, PBS specials, it's on us. Stephen Hawking is a cult hero. I mean, nobody who understands what he's talking about, but he's a cult hero. Stephen Hawking, because of his physical situation and all that he does and says. There are dozens of books that are coming out like this and like this and like this all the time. The greatest physicist, Paul Davies, will write a book called God and the New Physics. Because, yeah, something's going on out there and we've got to pay attention to it. There's a book by Stephen Hawking's student on, uh, what is it, physics and immortality. He proves immortality, because, but he's an atheist. But he proves physically that there has to be immortality. Well, every day there's another book coming out on these kinds of issues. Okay. So we want to be up to date with that. And the last point I'll make, if we go into our text, what I think is very interesting is that the person who studies along these lines, this Ma'aseh Bereshit, both from the scientific point of view as well as from the Kabbalistic or from any of these other books' point of view, one need not have the Kabbalah to go this route, is going to be a changed person. I very much believe in what Harambam did tell us that to come close to Borei Olam, to love and stand in awe of God, one would use the science of one's day. That I'm a changed person, my tefillah is not the same prior to me, my having studied this material. The two areas that I had actually studied with Joey, we studied Da'atibunot of Maharal, right? Mm-hmm. Two years ago, that helped, that changed, as well as studying all this. Yeah, this is all secular, but really it's religious. That your ideas, your kavanah tefillah is going to change by virtue of reading all the science that we've read. When you think about, and again, we've done this before, the extent of the universe and what it all means and all the implications of that is, then you're going On the other hand, we're, we're nobody, nothing, tiny specks. On the other hand, we're a little less than divine. We're a little less than God's image. So, this will impact, and I think in my life, certainly, having been open to all of this is just a wonderful exercise. And not only in mind stretching, but also in spiritually making me more profound, more sensitive, and Kabbalah does the same. Now, let's just say a few words about what Kabbalah is all about. Kabbalah is an extraordinary discipline. has its own vocabulary, has its own literature, has its own imagery, has its own symbolism. Right? Here is um, one of the Sefirot. We'll talk a little bit about later. We'll get to it. Right here. here. This is Sefirot. What are Sefirot? Sefirot are divine attributes. Sefirot represent that which goes on in the quote-unquote mind and life of God. The Kabbalah will tell you that all that we're saying is only metaphor. It's images. It's not literally true, but we'll define it as such anyway. Gives us a way of understanding what goes on in the inner life of God. But is it true? No, it's only a metaphor. But what really is true, we can't express it. We are maskil yidom. One of the favorite expressions of all the Kabbalists is, if you're wise, you'll keep quiet. Some of us are not so wise, unfortunately. Maybe, maybe not fortunately. The Kabbalah will use old flasks of wine, pouring new wine into it. What does that mean? Use old flasks of wine, the bottles, and pour new wine. What am I saying? It will take old traditional categories and will reinterpret them with a twist of a new angle. Example given. What does the word Olam Haba mean? 
the world to come. Now, if you're a bit more literate Jewishly, level four, three and a half to four, you will tell me what that really means in between the Rambam and Rabbi Moshe Abu Lafia. The Rambam says the world to come is really already here. It's a place that one goes in after one passes from this world. The world to come is not going to come. It's here. But it's going to come after passing away. You will go into that world that's here existing already. Moshe Abu Lafia in his commentary, Yad Raman Sanhedrin, the 10th chapter, of course, says, No, it's a world that will come when... When? When the Mashiach comes. Two different worlds. Right? The Rambam. Okay, that's, that's their argument. How does the Kabbalah see the Olam Haba? It is a world that is constantly coming. Constant, constantly flowing. And is a timeless dimension of reality available here and now. If one is receptive to it. I didn't, that's not me. We'll read that. That's from Daniel Matt. People who have gotten his PhD from Brandeis in Kabbalistic teachings when I was there. And again, a very special kind of a person, very spiritual kind of person. He brings together, we'll look at this a little bit later, the central Kabbalah, the heart of Jewish mysticism, where he gives you all kinds of sources from the Kabbalah. It's just the text. So that's what he says over there. Right? So he just tells us very simply. Let me see if I can find the exact quote again. Probably can't, but maybe I can. Yeah. For example, the world that is coming, a traditional phrase that often understood is referring to the Yuvarov Messianic era, turns into, quote, this is what says, the world that is constantly coming, constantly flowing, a timeless dimension of reality, available right here and now if one is receptive. That's a physical analog to this. This is more spiritual. Olam Haba is here now. Like Shabbat. Right, Shabbat could be that if you're receptive to it. Interestingly enough, this is free of charge now. This is not part of this discussion. Rabbi Haram one of my favorite personalities of all of Jewish history, has a concept as to how to celebrate Shabbat. And each person celebrates it differently. Those who only do it legally, it's nice, but it's not the real essence. And those who do it philosophically, it's nice, but not the real essence. In his Kifet Abedin, which is the Svetam of De Hashem, his work on the philosophical work, he describes he who does it essentially when you've risen beyond the legal, beyond the philosophical, to understand literally Shabbat as a glimpse into the eternity of Borei Olam. Not everybody reaches that height, that level, what Shabbat's really all about. So we all celebrate Shabbat. We're all on the same pathway. But there are two pathways. The pathway of normative Judaism, Halakha, etc. But also there is a pathway that it transcends the normative and you celebrate Shabbat. All the mitzvot are of this nature, this type. All the mitzvot have a normative dimension and a spiritualized dimension which transcends you from the normative to the higher level. Well, why do you put that uh, in this category of Kabbalah? I mean, the non-Kabbalists will also agree with that very clearly. There's Shabbat, 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 and then the essence of Shabbat, which doesn't have to be put into that emotional... Pietistic. Well, Correct. Well, that means much more. Agreed. 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 Yeah, it's true. Many could say that. It's not only poetic. Let's talk poetic. take the Kabbalah and call that a Kabbalistic experience is is extending the word Kabbalah far, far too I would not call it Kabbalistic experience. I didn't do that. No, but I'm saying in all this talk, what happens is we're taking... 
um, is it anything beyond the simple cut and dry, boring? I'm not saying that. Kind of thing, and, and we're saying, oh, it's Kabbalah. Well, I'm not saying it is. Well, not even, not even close. Not even close. I'm not implying it at all. He's not saying it's Kabbalah either. He's pre-Kabbalah. But all I'm saying is that he's saying it's a sword Shabbat. No, he's pre-Kabbalah. He's pre-Zohar. He has no, makes no reference to it at all. His sword Shabbat happens to have, to the contrary, it's not Kabbalistic at all. But it's sword Shabbat. There's an essential teaching of Shabbat that transcends the legal and philosophical to the sword. I'm not saying it's Kabbalah. I would never do that. I'm a good scholar. No, I'm Kabbalah. I'm just saying, no. He's saying what he says in his area. And Kabbalah is what he's saying it's, it's area. Kabbalah, but, but they both may have a touching dimension. They both may touch the ultimate essence of Shabbat. The secret of Shabbat may in fact, he wouldn't call it Kabbalah because he was pre-Kabbalah. Or not aware of Kabbalah. He doesn't mention Kabbalah at all. But he does speak about you, one uniting with Borei Olam, Usul in Arabic, to achieve the Vekut. Now, that is a Kabbalistic theme. That's my point. Correct, that's my point. That's my point. That in a non-Kabbalistic forum, you're still going to find ideas that later on were adopted or adapted by Kabbalists. By Kabbalists. Yeah, fine. Here he's saying to us over here that this notion, though, however, is that nobody would ever say, though, that Olam Haba really means, other than the Kabbalists, the world that is constantly coming, constantly flowing, the time dimension of reality right here and now. Nobody would say that if one is receptive. It reminds me of a um, beautiful um, statement by William Blake. I think it's by William Blake. He has a statement. who was a very mystical uh, English poet 200 years ago who says something to the effect, Earth crashes, heaven crashes with earth, all the earth aflame, but only he who sees removes his shoes. Referring to what text? Moshe, right, right. It's a beautiful, beautiful statement. He put poetically, that was Moshe. You have to be receptive to it. The world, one can see eternity on Shabbat if one is receptive to it. Similarly, another idea is an issue of what the Kabbalah does with mitzvot. We all know mitzvot as a means to an end, teleologically. Trying to make us the better people, changing the world, tikkun olam. That's what a mitzvah is really all about. How does the Kabbalah see mitzvot? Now mitzvot have cosmic impact. This quote from the Kabbalah, the secret of fulfilling the mitzvot is the mending of all worlds and drawing forth the emanation from above. According to Kabbalah, every human action here on earth affects the divine realm. Wow. Affects the divine realm. Affects Bore Olam. Either promoting or hindering the union of Shekhinah and her partner, Kadosh Baruch Hu, bless he. We say, Sephardim say, Leshem, Yehud, what does Yehud mean? To unify. As if there were a feminine aspect to Bore Olam in some strange, striking fashion. That's why some have cut it out. Still in the Sidurim. Some Sidurim. Not anymore. With the older ones, it has it. Has it? They have it. Yeah, okay. That's why we cut it out, exactly. The Holy One, Basbihi, is not static being, but dynamic becoming. Without human participation, God remains incomplete. Which reminds us of the way this was expressed later in Luliana Kabbalah as Shivirat Kelim. We'll talk about that a little bit later as we go along. Where HaKadosh Baruch tries to create the world, His essence flowing, emanating from the divine being, 
expressed through the sefirot, which are aspects of divine being, sefirot. And what happens then? Receptacles broken apart, divine sparks spread all over, all over. And what's our job as doing a mitzvot? Reunify. Uncover and reunify. We say before a mitzvah, when you eat an apple, you're reunifying divine presence. Mashiach comes when it's all done. Difficult concepts. Very difficult concepts. But their view of their view of mitzvot is of that way as well. Yeah, well, he certainly came afterwards. Absolutely. Very much so. Very much so. Correct. Yeah, as a Hasidic rabbi, he was a capitalist. Yeah. So we affect the divine realm. Mitzvot mend the kelim slash divine world that were broken at creation. Now, great rabbis have promoted Kabbalah from the Talmudic times. We discussed that. The Hachalot literature. The notion of Pardes, Pardes, Paradise is Kabbalah types of teachings. Going all the way down to the Ra'avad and the Ramban. Correct. They've all promoted to the 20th century. How, how do they define Kalim exactly? I, I know we'll come vessels. to it. Vessels. But we'll have to come to it. Oh. You see it inside. I, don't, I dare not suggest <laughs> right. so an answer but we'll come to it over here. Okay, good. To the 20th century, Kabbalah is alive and well in many, many circles. Not only Hasidic circles. Sorry? No! Don't say that, please. I hate Scientology. I'm talking about, but I don't want to... Yeah, that's silly stuff. That's L.A. Kabbalah, right. No. But Scientology is, is a horrible discipline. There's nothing to do with anything serious. Scientology. Okay, so all the way to Rav Kook, Avraham Kook, also, of course, is one of the most famous of 20th century Mikubalim. Rav Kook and has great expressions of his Kabbalistic ideas. So here again you have a discipline that is valuable to study. But the roots of Kabbalah go back to, of course, Torah. Kabbalah, again, is taking the old vessels and infusing them with new ideas, new thoughts, new emotions, which is extraordinarily, and I think it's wonderful. Let's look at some of the texts that Kabbalah is going to deal with. One of the first texts that Kabbalah is very concerned about, second to Ma'aseh Bereshit. Ma'aseh Bereshit is the first and primary text. Sorry? No, that's, that's down the road. First, Ma'aseh Bereshit is number one. But after that, where would you think we're going to find a great text source? Okay, now hold on to that second for a second. A source wherein we want to have visions of Bore Olam. Visions of God. Where are we going to find it? Who has the first vision of God? Hasina is good, but late. Moshe. We look at Shemuel, at Sevesh Shemot Gimel. Right? Let's look at that for a second. Shemot Gimel. Okay. At what we just already mentioned, intentionally so. We look at Fasuk Bet, page 300. Malach Hashem Bet. He sees. He sees the burning bush, and yet the bush is not consumed by the flame, by the fire. Moshe says, let me go and see. I want to emphasize the words over here, to see. That becomes a very important Kabbalistic term, to see visions of God. Let me go and see. I will turn and see this great spectacle. Why is this, fire, why is this burning bush not consumed? God sees, Vayar Hashem. Again, look at verse 2. I'll emphasize again, when the Torah repeats any term repeatedly, it wants you to focus on that particular term. 
leitmotif of the term, right. So we started off this whole entire section over here, where, Vayera Malach Hashem Elav, Vayera, appears in the passive sense, Vayar, he sees, I will go and see this great Mar'eh, this great vision, Madua, why not? Vayar Hashem, look at the divine response to Moshe seeing. Hashem sees, He saw Lirod, He turned to see. To see, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And Elohim calls out to him from the midst of the Remove your shoes. The land upon which you stand is holy ground. Okay, good. Right, Moshe shoes. And then, I am the God of your forefathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moshe hides his face. He's afraid to see. Now, beat. Another word is used. Another word, to see Elohim. Look at the next one from Hashem. The Oraiti. I have surely seen. Again. So Moshe hides his face. He's afraid to see the face of God. Now, hold on to that and go to Shemot Lamed Gimel, please. 33. Exactly. In incredible context. Again, this is very important for our Kabbalistic teachings. We look at Shemot Lamed Gimel, page 506. Moshe wants to. See divine glory. Had any. What is the root of the word had any? To see. To see divine glory. So, I will pass by all my goodness on your, by your face, Panecha. I will call out the name of God. I shall be compassionate and gracious. But, Pasuk 20, but, Vayomet, but, Vayomet, as Vav good, Vav of contrast, 506. You cannot see, Lord Tuchad, you cannot see my face. I will pass my goodness by your face, but you cannot see Panai, my face, because man cannot see me and live. Now, of course, I see your point means what? To intellectually comprehend. So to seeing both in English as well as in Hebrew means the same. Here the double entendre is that Hashem will pass with us, but Mesha cannot understand fully because man cannot see? No. Man cannot understand God and live. Man cannot understand what Olam. God's recognition. We will get back to this. Don't go away. Pasuk 21. Shem says, There's a place by me. Place is very important as well. You will stand by the rock and when my glory passes by, I will place you in the crack of the rock and I shall, I shall cover, kapi alech, I'll place my, over you, titas, that I shall remove asiroti, kapi, my covering, you shall see my back, or my face, my face shall not see. Which, of course, is very interesting. Now, hold on to that source again. Let's look at one other, two other sources in this context. In the book of Bamidbar, the Alot Echa, the end, page 794, very important context, when Aharon and Miriam speak against Moshe. Moshe is extraordinarily humble. Pasuk 4, chapter 12, page 794. Leave. Three of you leave. Three leave. HaKadosh Baruch comes down in the pillar of a cloud. Standing by the opening of the oil. And he calls out. Now they're alone. Yom, he says to them, You think you are prophets? Because they made the claim, we're 
Hashem spoke to us as well. We're also prophets. Why Moshe do what he did? Hashem bamar'ah elav etadah. If you are in fact prophets, God shall appear bamar'ah to him, come known, in a dream. Lochen avdim. We'll share the next page, please. He is chovetin eman hu. Pale pale. I shall speak to him. Pale pale. Mouth to mouth. Umar e And I will see me. Umar e. And not behidot. Behidot in a puzzling context. Utumat Hashem yabit. Which we had from the very beginning of Shemot Perek Gimel. Yabit. Moshe was afraid to see. Yare mehabit. To see. But I, he shall see the picture of God. And why are we not afraid to speak against Moshe? Last context. The very last pasuk in the Torah was a Talmud, Devarim. Jewish little people should know the very last pasuk in Devarim. Exactly. But what's the key word over there? You will see the key word. That's correct. You will exactly that. You will see the key word. Let's look at page 1122. Pasuk 10. Velo. 1122, pasuk 10. That's Perek Lamed Dalet, pasuk Yud of Devarim. Face to face. So if you go through all of this, you see from the very beginning, Moshe hid his face. He was afraid to see Hebi, to see. At the end, Borei Olam says, he saw God face to face. He knew God face to face. He didn't see God, because God cannot be seen face to face. But he knew, he knew God face to face. You have, an, I would say, an ongoing... a. Um, development from the very beginning of the fear all the way to the very end. So, of course, the vision of God is very much an issue of Kabbalah that one would want to know about. Now, as well, there are two other contexts that we don't really have the time now to see, so I'll just quickly read it to you. You have one of them. Actually, you probably have both, but you do have one of them. Look at to the Hatara of Yitro, which is Shayao Perek Vav. Yitro, Hatara. Yitro, Yitro, I did, they did, they listened to me, they finally did. Pasha Yitro, it's on page 1154. Yeah, we bought 40, we bought 40 of them, they're wonderful. Yisro, Yitro, page 1154, right? Shnat Motamelech Uziyahu. I could raise the question, when did the Uziyahu the king die? You should all be, of course, aware of that year. The, dear, the year of... No. The year of Ishayahu's consecration as an Avi. No. You're 100 years off. It's okay. Yeah. A little bit later. 746, 745. What happens? I saw God sitting on a throne, an exalted throne. love and that which comes out filled the Hechal. He has legs. I like this translation over here. One second. I'll show you. Better translation. Shea Pedic Vav right here. Okay, let's see. And the skirts of his robe. This is a terrible translation, unfortunately. This is the, better, the best translation you're going to find. And the skirts of his robe filled the temple. Angels were standing in attendance on him. Each of them had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his legs. And with two, the angel would fly. And one would say, of course, one should be aware of this, and one would say to the, one to the other, Kadosh, 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 
Hashem, the creator of all that is. Hashem Sivot is an elliptical phrase, which of course means missing a word. The word is, biblical style is elliptical. Hashem Boret Sivot. Hashem who created all that there is. His presence fills the whole earth. The doorpost would shake at the sound of the one who called. The house kept filling with smoke. Ba'omad, he cries out, the Navi cries out, Yishayahu. Oilik, he did meti, woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, Tamesifatayim. And I've seen God. Kitamalach Hashem said, Ra'o'enai. I've seen the King God who created all that is. He had a vision, a vision of God. He saw it. One of the angels flew over to me with a live coal, which he takes from the altar with a pair of tongues, touched my lips. Your sin has been removed. What sin did he have? Well, he says, more so, the way that the Musar people tell us, one has no right as an Abbe to malign the Jewish people. When he said, I'm sitting in the midst of a polluted people, he sinned. But now he's cleansed. Now he's cleansed with this coal touching his lips. And then comes the, the only time in the history of Jewish people where Navi volunteers to become a prophet. As we know, Moshe backed out, chose to back out. Yonah runs away. Yonah says, Who the heck am I? I'm not an Anochi. I cannot be a prophet. Only Yishayahu, when he hears, Whom shall we send? Whom shall we send? Who shall go for us? Here I am. Send me. The only example of this is that so our key issue over here is to take note that this chapter 6 where a man sees a vision of God is a very important issue in the development of Kabbalah and of course just to be very quick about it Yechazkel as well one of the most glorious glorious of chapters in all of Navi is the very first chapter of Yechazkel which is the Haftarah for um, Pesach oh not this one it's, no it's, what is it? Shavuot, right. Pesach has a 36th chapter, I think it is. Right. This is Yechezkel Perek Aleph. And the translation, I'm sure, there is terrible. But if you look over there, this, this really gets a little bit better, a lot better. And of course, this is the basis for all Ma'aseh Merkava. Pass down. I did. All donated. Oh, well, that's an expense. I got 30% off. I got it for 21 because I was 30% off because I bought 40 and donated thank you David and Susan Azar Cohen okay page please announce the page now interestingly enough of course we note that Yechazkel's name is mentioned only once in the entire book over here otherwise he's Ben Adam son of man you could of course raise the question and when we ever study this book we will raise the question, why is he called Ben Adam throughout the entire book other than the first chapter? Interesting issue that has to be pursued. When does this take place? We have to know the history behind it, of course. I'm not going to tell you about this now, the history of the, liter- the literary analysis. Take the 30th year and the fourth day of the month, 30th year and the fourth day of the fourth, fifth day of the fourth month, he's in the exile. It's 593 before the common era. After Galut Yoyachin, there was King Yoyachin, you should know about, who commits a revolution against Yifchanetzam Ech Bavel. 
He's killed in the revolution. Assassinated or dies. One of them, nobody really knows. His son, Yoyachin, becomes the king. He's taken away with the king, Yoyachin, taken, the, the queen, all the artisans, those who make weapons, and Yehoshkel is taken away. So now he's there. And the heavens opened. And I saw, my looking, I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which is the fifth year after the exile of Yerachim, so it's 598 or 7 minus 5 is 593. This place is 593 for the common era. Yes. Yes. This is the only reason outside the correct. The word of God came to Yerachim and Bozi. Akuhen, Beskasdim, Babylonia, Har Kevad, Batiyalavarusham, Yad Hashem. Of course, you want to analyze where Yad Hashem plays a role as opposed to, let's say, Hamasak. It compares to all of the Nevi'im. Did Yad Hashem come on Moshe? No. You want to analyze. Every prophetic experience is different. Whether it's Yad Hashem or Hazon, vision, whatever it may be, it's all different. The same Nabi could have multiple or different types of encounters with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Different. This is Yad Hashem. It would seem to me to be a very harsh encounter. God's hand is felt very strongly over here. Morris? Uh-huh. Very accurate. Correct. The vessel is different all the time. So this is Yad Hashem. Vaid'er. And I saw. Let's look at the English. It's a beautiful translation. The best is probably Moshe Greenberg's from the Anchor Bible, but this one tree is good. I looked and lo, a stormy wind came sweeping out of the north. A huge cloud and flashing fire surrounded by a radiance and in the center of it, in the center of the fire, a gleam of, as of amber. In the center of it were also the figures of four, winged, four creatures and this was their appearance. They had the figures of human beings. However, each had four faces and each of them had four wings. The legs of each one were fused to a single rigid leg and the feet of each were like a single calf's hoof and the sparkle was like the luster of burnished bronze. They had human hands below their wings. The four of them had their face and their wings on their four sides. Each one's wings touched those of the other. It did not turn when they moved. Each could move in the direction of any of its faces. That means it was like a pole. Each could go this way, this way, or this way, or this way. They could not turn. There was no hinges. They had to go one of four directions. They did not turn when they moved. Each could move in the direction of any face. Each of them had a human face. Each of them had a face of a lion on the right. Each of them had a face of an ox. Each of them had a, an, an eagle at the back. Of course, you want to know why those four were shakas from the Such was their faces. As for their wings, they were separated above. Each had two, each had two touching those of the others covered the body. And each could move in the direction of any of its faces. Such was the appearance of the creatures. With them was something that looked like burning coals of fire. The fire suggested of torches kept moving about among the creatures. The fire had a radiance and a lightning issued from the fire. Dashing to and fro among the creatures was something that looked like flares. As I gazed on the creatures, I saw, wheel, I saw one wheel on the ground next to each of the four-faced creatures. As for the appearance and structure of the wheels, they gleamed like barrel. All four had the same form. The appearance and structure of each of was as the two wheels cutting to each other. Wheels cutting into each other. Odd vision. And when they moved, each could move in the direction of any of its four quarters. They did not veer when they moved. The rims of the wheels were tall and frightening, for the rims of all four covered all over with eyes. Could you imagine that? that? All the wheels had eyes. And when the creatures moved forward, the wheels moved at their sides, and when the creatures were born above the earth, the wheels were born too. So it's a flying chariot. 
Whenever the Spirit impelled them to go, they went. Whenever the Spirit impelled them, and the wheels were borne alongside them. For the Spirit of the creatures was in the wheels. Which is a strange statement. The movement was in the wheels. When those moved, these moved, and when, when those stood still, these stood still. And when those were born above the earth, the wheels were born alongside them. The wheels. Above the heads of the creatures was a form. This is important. It was a form. An expanse. An awe-inspiring gleam as of crystal was spread out above their heads. We should go back and look at the Hebrew to that as well. Verse Kaf Bet. Crystal. Hanura. Awesome crystal. Under the expanse, each had one pair of wings extended toward those of the others, and each had another pair covering the body. When they moved, I could hear the sound of their wings like the sound of mighty waters, like the sound of Shaddai, a tumult like the din of an army. So still they would let their wings droop. From above the expanse, over their heads came a sound. When they stood still, they would let their wings droop. Those of their heads was the semblance of a throne. Here's Hashem. Semblance of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. Top upon the semblance of a throne, there was a semblance of a human form. From what appeared as his loins up, I saw a gleam of amber and, a, and what looked like a fire encased in a frame. And from what appeared as loins down, I saw what looked like fire. There was rain all about him, like the appearance of the bow which shines in the clouds in the day of rain, such was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. That was the appearance of the symptoms of the presence of the Lord. When I beheld it, I flung myself down on my face and I heard the voice of someone speaking. Very powerful. When you see this and translate it, we didn't do it very carefully, no time for that, but when you read this and see this, then you have a sense of why this became the central text of all Kabbalistic teachings. Visions of God. Yechazkul saw visions of God. So one has to be aware that Kabbalah, in fact, takes all of that we discussed here this evening and will reshape it in spontaneous, new, creative ways which are meant to open up new doors. That's Maaseh Merkava, one of the poles. Maaseh Bereshit is based on another work called Sefer Yetzirah, the book of creation, authored between the 3rd and the 8th century, which talks about how Akadosh Baruch Hu used the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet along with the Sefirot in order to ultimately create the world. Now, what we could do now is um, just read... We could do it next week. Do you have... You want to read it? Okay, we'll read the first Kabbalistic teaching. We'll start with, this, with the Zohar. Mm-hmm. Zohar, yes. So this is the right? That's Masebe Kavah. Not, does not achieve the same kind of status as this. We'll begin to read, this is the book of the Zohar, we'll read the Zohar first, how the Zohar sees Maaseh Bereshit. That's the first issue. And then next week we'll come back, next week we'll come back to see how other Kabbalistic teachings as well look at Maaseh Bereshit. Okay, this is from the opening lines, the opening words, and we'll only read the first paragraph from the Zohar. Of course, Zohar is written in Aramaic, not enough copies. I apologize. <laughs> At the outset, this is from Bereshit Aleph, right? Bereshit Aleph. This is how God creates the world. At the outset, the decision of the king Melech, as opposed to Elohim, made a tracing in the supernal effulgence. A lamp. You want to listen? Yeah, sure. A lamp of scintillation or, alternatively, footnote 2, darkness, Hoshech. And they're issued within the impenetrable recesses of the mysterious, limitless, a shapeless nucleus, or vapor, Ruach of vapor, 
enclosed in a ring, neither white nor black nor red nor green or any other color at all. When he took measurements, he fashioned colors to show within. And within the lamp there issued a certain effluence from which colors were imprinted below. The most mysterious power enshrouded in the limitless clave, as it were, without cleaving its void, remaining wholly unknowable. One never knows God. Until from the force of the strokes there shone forth a supernal and mysterious point. Beyond that point there is no knowable. Therefore it's called Yeshit beginning. The creative utterance which is the starting point of all. A black hole. Right. It is written. And the intelligent shall shine. Daniel 12, 3. That's a very important pasuk also for other reasons because that's where Rabbi Meshach talks about it there as well. And the intelligent shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and they that turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There was indeed a brightness, Zohar, the most mysterious, which is Hashem, struck its void and caused its point to shine. Why all this for creation? Because God is infinite, God is all. And therefore, God, how could anything exist if God is all? Therefore, there has to be a vacuum, an emptiness, that ha- God had to make first an empty space, called Timtum, which is self-contraction, in order to create an emptiness in which the physical world could ultimately be created. Right? The most mysterious struck its void and caused its point to shine, the point of creation. This beginning then extended and made for itself a palace for its honor and glory. Presumably for Hashem's honor and glory, but not sure. There it sowed a sacred seed which was to generate for the benefit of the universe and to which may be applied the scripture words, the holy seed is stock thereof. Yishayah Pedic Vav 6 Again there was light in that it sowed a seed for its glory just as the silkworm encloses itself, as it were, in a palace of its own production both useful and beautiful. Thus, by means of this beginning, the mysterious unknown made this palace. There's a whole set of Talmudic uh, literature which is called Hechalot literature, which is palaces of God, based on all of this. The palace is called Elohim. The doctrine is contained in the words, by means of a beginning, it created Elohim, which is very striking, what it's saying now. Right? We don't have to explain why it's so striking. But it's very... Because look at the Pasuk. Bereshit... But uh, Elohim. Something created Elohim. Very striking. The Zohar is that from which were created all the creative utterances through the extension of the point of this mysterious brightness. Nor, nor need we be surprised at the use of the word created in this connection, the Zohar says, seeing that... Page 2? Here's page 2. If you insist. Seeing that we read further on, and God created man in his image. A further esoteric interpretation of the word Bereshit is as follows. So it, created, it gave us one explanation of what this means. But the word Bereshit also means something else. Hidden interpretation. The name of the starting point of all is Ehyeh. Where does that come from? Ehyeh. Ehyeh, exactly. Ehyeh. The name of the starting point of all is Ehyeh. The verb to be. Which is this. The holy name, when inscribed at its side, is Elohim. When inscribed by circumscription between the two Ehiyahs, Ehiyah Asher Ehiyah, is Asher, the hidden and the recondite temple, the source of that which is specifically called the Sheet. The word Asher, Aleph Shin Resh, the word Bereshit also, Asher and Bereshit, same letters appear, is anagrammatically Rosh, head. The beginning which issues from the Sheet. 
Of course, the Kabbalah also has a rosh or a head, right? Which is the keter, the crown, that what's known as the Dankan Mon really wears. The beginning which is the Shram Reshit. So when the point and the temple were firmly established together, then, then Bereshit combined the supernal beginning with wisdom. The first emanation of the divine, as the keter is Chokhmah, wisdom. Hashem be'ochmah yisad arts. God, through the wisdom, created the earth. Afterwards, the character of that temple was changed and it was called Bait. Bet, Bereshit, Bet. The combination of this with the supernal point, which is called Rosh, gives Bereshit. Bait, Rosh. Which is named used so long as the house is uninhabited. When, however, it was sown with seed to make it habitable, it was called Elohim. Hidden and mysterious. Zohar was hidden and withdrawn so long as the building was within and yet to bring forth there's no light yet, and the house was extended also far as to find room for the holy seed. Before it had conceived and had extended sufficiently to be habitable, it was not called Elohim, but it was still included in the term Bereshit. What is holy seed? What's the Aramaic of holy seed? What are we referring to? Is that Akadishah? That's what we call it. Maybe that's the Sheleg. The Sheleg. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. After it had acquired the name of Elohim, it brought forth offspring from the seed that had been implanted in it. Let's stop here. Hmm. Intentionally so. Watch well, not read Zohar after 6.46. Okay, so we'll continue with some other of these teachings, but really my intent is to give you some flavor, some idea as to how the Zohar sees the opening verses of Bereshit in a very starkly diff- different radical fashion that you've ever been used to reading before. I think you'll all admit to that. And we'll look at a few more chapters, a few more pages of the Kabbalah, which will give us again a sense of this. And then we'll go back to trying to see how all this fits into God and the Big Bang. Thank you.